Welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, as always, Tyler Crawley, and, well, it happened. It finally happened. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it happened in the housing market, and that was we saw a year-over-year price growth slowdown, and if I had an applause button, I'd be pressing it right now, but <laughs> I do not have one. Uh, I, it, it was pretty exciting. It was pretty exciting news to see this report come out. So, of course, I'm talking about the gold standard when it comes to home prices. That would be the Case-Shiller Index. And for the first time since November, which if you remember in November, we thought that the housing market was beginning to slow down. I think we might have seen one in de- December as well. Don't. Quote me on that, but I believe it was, that's when we saw the slowdown. And then of course things started in January. We first saw it with, uh, it was Altos Research and they were like, Hey, inventory levels are disappearing. We've never seen this low level of inventory. And then all of a sudden the housing market took off again, along with rates. But here we are again, here we are again, friends. <laughs> it looks like we could be seeing, keep our fingers crossed, um, the housing market beginning to slow down. So here's the data. And it's, it's nothing drastic. I want to warn you, it's not like a big drop. It was just a drop. That in itself is impressive. The S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller U.S. National Home Price NSA Index. Woo. Every time I always try and read that without having to take a breath, never works. Uh, they reported a 20.4% annual gain. So April 2022. April 2021, 20.4%. That is down from the 20.6% growth that we saw in March. So even though home prices are still up 20%, they're only up 20.4%. And therein lies the magic. And then looking at the month over month increase, the U.S. National Index posted a 2.1% month over month increase in April, but that was down from the 2.6% that we saw in March. So annual and monthly gains showed signs of slowing. So awesome. No other way. It's just awesome. It's just, (laughs) let's hope. We got to hope now that the May report is going to show slowing really kicking into gear. And we're not going to see another false flag, another fake report. Well, they were real, but we just tricked into thinking that the housing market was starting to slow. And then things really took off. Now, obviously, there are a lot more factors involved now versus where we were at the end of 2021. So I have confidence that this could be the beginning of the slowdown. But I've been wrong before. (laughs) So what do I know? Now, here's the other thing that's a little troubling. The 20-city composite, which is usually what economists sort of look at to, to make their prediction for each month. They don't look at the overall index. They look at the 20 city composite. That was at 21.2%, which was actually up from the month before when it was 21.1%. And economists had actually predicted that it was going to fall. So there was a fall, but it wasn't with the 20 city composite. It was with the national index. Now, where do you think, which housing market was the hottest? No, you thought Phoenix. Of course, Phoenix was number one for almost three years. It was not. In fact, the state of Florida is like the epicenter for rising home prices because Tampa 
had the biggest year-over-year price growth at 35.8%, followed by another place in Florida, you might've heard of it, called Miami. That was up 33.3%. Man, I remember, I wanna say it was in the journal. I wanna say end of last year, maybe. And they were saying how like Florida was sort of like a net, it was like a zero sum. There wasn't a net increase in migration. A lot of people were moving to Florida during the pandemic, but there were also a lot of people leaving. And so I thought maybe we wouldn't see this insanity in Florida. And it turns out that might not have been entirely correct, at least not in these areas, because Florida, the top two areas, metro areas are in Florida. Now, Phoenix, as I mentioned, which led the category for almost three years straight, has now fallen back to the number three position. Oh, man. Poor Phoenix. They're only up 31.3% year over year. Oh, my gosh. It's basically going backwards in Phoenix. Only up 31.3%. So that was from the Case-Shiller Index, as I mentioned, the gold standard when it comes to home prices. But when we get the Case-Shiller Index, the same day we always get the Federal Housing Finance Agency's Home Price Index also for the same month. And they're always like a couple percentage points behind. And so, you know, the case shiller is pretty much the gold standard. So I guess you can say the FHFA is not doing as good of a job, but they had home prices up 18.8%, which was actually up from the month prior when it was 18.7%. And they had home prices up 1.6%, which was exactly what they had in April as well. So... A little, not entirely different. I mean, obviously we're talking about statistically insignificant moves up one up and one down, but a little different. Uh, and like I said, the FHFA is always, always a little bit, I won't say smaller, <laughs> lower number. That's the number I was going to say. It's a smaller number. Uh, so like I said, year over year, 18.8% and month over month, 1.6%. Now what's cool about the FHFA report is they actually have a more detailed regional report. So the Case Shiller only has sort of like the top three metro areas. Uh, This gives it to you by region, both annual and monthly. And the South Atlantic, not surprising, not surprised by that at all, led the way up 23.5% year over year, followed by the Mountain Region, pretty close behind at 23.3%. And then the West, the West, the West South Central region was up 19.2%. And then looking at the month over month jump, the West, not West, the West South Central region was a top dog with a 2.5% jump month over month, followed closely by West North Central up 2.3% and then 1.9% for the South Atlantic. Will Dorner, a economist at the FHFA, noted that low inventory levels will keep prices elevated even though rates are moving up, saying in a statement, quote, the inventory of homes on the market remain low, which has continued to keep upward pressure on sales prices. Increasing mortgage rates have yet to offset demand enough to deter the strong price gains happening across the country, which makes sense. I mean, you're still seeing that, especially in 
the South Atlantic, <laughs> where there's still a ton of demand, ton of construction, all of this going on. So I don't know. We got to keep our fingers crossed. Could this be the beginning of a return to a more normal housing market? And you do have to stress that we're returning to a normal housing market because you look at some of the headlines out there and they're like mortgage layoffs are happening. And yeah, that's true because the mortgage industry just took off during the pandemic and it stayed that way, stayed elevated with just record, I mean, doubling in originations. And now that level's not there anymore. It was never gonna stay there. And so that's inevitably going to happen. And it's not the end of the world. It's not 2008. It's not Armageddon. It's just a return to normalcy. <laughs> that's all it is. But that doesn't, yeah, you can't, not going to sell papers. Yeah, it's so funny because we still say that, like, you're not going to sell papers with that. Well, who buys papers anymore? Like, no one. So I, you're not going to get clicks with that, is what I should be saying. Now, this will also not surprise you. Well, no, actually, that maybe was surprising. This is not surprising at all. Consumer confidence fell again for the month and is now at a four-month low. Higher prices are just wreaking havoc on consumers and they're just not confident about what is happening or going to happen in the future. So this is the latest report from the conference board. The conference board consumer confidence index fell 4.5 points to 98.7. So it's under a hundred now. Uh, this is for the month of May and economists had projected that it would fall, but it would stay above 100. So a much bigger drop. Consumer confidence is now down 28 points from the same time one year ago. And to be fair, because I was going back and looking at the data to make sure I get it correct. And a year ago in May, we saw, it was either May or June, we saw the highest reading in I think three or four years. So we're making this year over year comparison to a time when things had really ramped up you know, the vaccine, we're coming out of the pandemic. Everyone was feeling really good. They got stimulus checks. Things are, they're happy. And so now we're in a much different place. So, I mean, it's a bad number, no doubt. Falling under 100, that's that's not good. That you're, you're now in negative territory with regards to consumer sentiment. But it's also the year-over-year comparisons a little misleading because of how high it was a year ago. Now, the decline continues to be led almost exclusively by the expectations index, which fell 7.3 points. It is now at 66.4. This is the lowest level it's been since March 2013. Now, I don't, what was happening in March 2013 that it was that low? I don't remember. It was almost 10 years ago. I'm trying to think what was happening in the economy at that time. Was it the temper tantrum back then, March 2013? Might have been. That might have been the, uh, or excuse me, temper tantrum. The taper tantrum. <laughs> that's, see, the taper tantrum is a playoff of the temper tantrum. Uh, I think maybe that's what was going on in 2013. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Uh, but 66.4, if under 100 is looked at as being in a bad place, I mean, they're getting close to 50 for the expectations. Now, the present situation index, yeah, it declined 0.3, so basically insignificant statistically uh, from 147 or 147.4 to 147.1. So it's all. People are worried about what is going to be happening. Lynn Franco, Senior Director of Economic Indicators at the Conference Board, said it's all about inflation. 
I mean, just, any, anyone can tell you that. I mean, it's very clear. Uh, Franco said, quote, consumers' grimmer outlook was driven by increasing concerns about inflation, in particular rising gas and food prices. Expectations have now fallen well below a reading of 80, suggesting weaker growth in the second half of 2022. Purchasing intentions, I almost said invitations, purchasing intentions, which kind of the same thing, for cars, homes, and major appliances held relatively steady, but intentions have cooled since the start of the year, and this trend is likely to continue as the Fed aggressively raises interest rates to tame inflation. I mean, that's true, right? If you're going to borrow, I guess a lot of these, you know, it's kind of a difficult place for companies because... They want people to borrow. They know where rates are. So maybe they offer them 0% or they do something, but then you're risking people defaulting and you're worried about the economy takes a little bit of a hit. Could those people default? And you want to encourage them to buy these bigger products, but usually financing is going to be involved. So it is definitely a interesting place and you can see why people are concerned looking forward. And speaking of inflation, there was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday by John H. Cochran, who says the Federal Reserve can't cure inflation by itself. And this is a point that's been made by a lot of people for usually political purposes. But this is there's no politics in this. This is what I liked about this op-ed. So Cochran points out that the current inflation was sparked by fiscal policy. The Fed printing, borrowing $5 trillion, sending checks to people, businesses, all of that. But he also points something out, and this is something that I've made note to other people. Sure, it was a lot. It was the most we've ever done ever. But we've been printing money for decades. Or I should say this last decade, we've been printing a ton of money and we didn't see anything close to what we're seeing right now. And so Cochran points out that the Federal Reserve's monetary policy tools to cure this inflation are blunt. By raising interest rates, the Fed pushes the economy towards recession. It hopes to push just enough to offset the stimulus fiscal boost, but monetary breaks and floored fiscal gas pedal mistreat the economic engine. Because he points out that this stimulus has led to inflation, thus reflects a broader loss of faith that the U.S. will be able to repay its debt. He says the point, of course, raising interest rates is to discourage people from spending. But in this case, it's not going to discourage people from spending government stimulus checks. At best, the economy is unbalanced. The economy needs investment in housing. And uh, I've never agreed with a sentence more. We need housing. And that's what sucks so much about this current situation, because you're raising rates and you're pushing down demand for homes. Which, you know, I mean, obviously I think we need to do because of where home prices have gotten to. But at the same time, the other cure for those home prices is to build more inventory. And what happens when you push down demand and increase borrowing costs, that increases borrowing costs across the board. So now builders have to spend more money to borrow money. And they're worried about demand. And so maybe they stop building. And you're like, no, we have to keep building. No, don't stop. We have to keep. But I understand why they're not. And it's kind of like you have to find this perfect sort of Goldilocks equilibrium. And it's hard to do. I mean, it's very hard to do. 
it doesn't have it, it never works <laughs> i mean it's central planning never works and so it's very very hard to do uh and so slowing the economy isn't guaranteed to reduce inflation especially for durables even in the 2008 recession cochran points out with unemployment above eight percent core inflation fell only <laughs> from 2.4 percent in december to 0.6 percent in october so it never even went negative despite the fact that we had an 8% unemployment rate. Now, many governments, including the U.S., are wanting to address this inflation problem by printing more money and help, to help people pay their bills, which if you know anything about inflation or how it works, that's the stupidest thing in the history of the planet. It always reminds me of that scene from Ricky Bobby. What's it called? Uh, uh, Talladega Nights where Ricky Bobby stabs himself in the thigh and then they're like <laughs> they're like we got to stick another knife in there <laughs> to pry the knife out <laughs> and it, all it does is just put another knife into his leg <laughs> but that's that is literally what the government is suggesting to do when it comes to inflation if prices are rising because there's too much money in the system and your solution is to print more money you're just sticking another knife into your leg. That's all that you're doing. You need to pull liquidity out of the system in order to get prices to drop. Because as Milton Friedman always says, or said, <laughs> inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Too much money chasing too few goods. So putting more money out there only exacerbates the inflation. So Cochran says monetary policy alone cannot cure sustained inflation. The government will also have to fix the underlying fiscal problem, short run deficit reduction, temporary measures or accounting gimmicks are not going to work. Neither will he points out because a lot of people are going to say, oh, what are we supposed to do? Go back to austerity? No, he says a bout of growth killing high tax austerity is also not the answer. The U.S. has to persuade people that over the long haul of several decades, it will return to its tradition of running small primary surpluses that gradually repay debts. That outcome requires economic growth, which raises long-run taxable income. Raising tax rates alone is like climbing a sand dune as each rise hurts income growth. The U.S. also needs a spending reform, especially on entitlements, and it needs to break the cycle that each crisis will be met by a river of printed or borrowed money that bails out big financial firms and stimulus checks for voters. I think he's, you know, I think he's spot on. I mean, I think we need a lot of reform with regard to spending. I think that you know we could make an argument for raising certain taxes and certain taxes on. Some people, but the idea that, you know, we're going to raise the 1% taxes to 91% like we used to back in the day, people, anyone that says that doesn't understand how taxes work because back in the day, nobody paid 91%. No one, <laughs> All right? You could write so much off your taxes that I believe the effective tax rate is pretty much the same now that it was then because you could write so much off. Now you can't write as much stuff off. So it's it's more whatever your tax rate is, that's what you're paying. I mean, still, obviously, tax attorneys get paid a lot to find a way to save people money. But back in the day, it was much easier. <laughs> you could write like literally anything off. 
And so things have changed a lot. So, I mean, you could make arguments here and there. I don't, I don't think anything is off the table, but we really do need to look at our fiscal situation. I mean, how can anyone look at where our debt level is? And I'm not one of those people that's like, oh my God, it's catastrophic and things are going to be horrible because there is a solution, but we have to start at least trying to find it <laughs> instead of ignoring the problem or arguing that it's Armageddon. The answer, of course, is always somewhere in the middle. All right, we got to go. You guys enjoy your Wednesday. We'll be back here Thursday morning for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait. Wait.